This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And Logan, the Boston Celtics have life. They just took game five in a pretty definitive fashion on their home floor. Now down just 3-2 against the Heat. What did you take away from this game? You know, I mean, it's it's going to be tough to finish this thing out for Miami, man. Uh, like you said, we saw... A lot of life from Boston. I mean, from the jump, uh, Miami gets smacked in the mouth uh, in the first quarter. I mean, slack jawed. I mean, a clean, open hand <laughs> smack right to the face. And it's hard to come back from that, man. The Celtics got into rhythm early with a lot of great defensive plays, easy transition offense. And it's really hard to bounce back from that, man. Boston wins a lot of the categories in this game uh, today, man. I mean, you talk about the hustle categories. They win on the glass, 10 to seven on offensive boards, second chance points, 17 to two. Uh, they forced 16 turnovers and turned the ball over just nine times. And I, I thought, you know, that's where we can start. Great defense from Boston tonight uh, from the tip to the end of this game, getting into passing lanes, getting up on ball handlers. And that was the biggest difference to me in this game from games previous in this entire series. They were up in the ball handlers' mouths for Miami. Like, they were making life really difficult on them, swarming them, trying to limit as many drives uh, as they can. And then, of course, what's one of the biggest keys? Celtics' uh, keys to victory every single night at shooting the lights out. They are 38-2, and two, as they said on the broadcast, when they shoot 40% or better. They are 44-10 and 10 on this season when they make 15 or more three-pointers. So... There is a little bit of concern that I have for Miami, man. I mean, you need superhuman Jimmy. In games three and four, he's 22-9-6 and six on 41-20-84 splits. 
We need superhuman Jimmy Carson. We need Jimmy to be unequivocally the best player on the floor. I think that's something that's been understated throughout these playoffs. It's something that we've touched on, but it took, like, best player in the world heroics to beat Milwaukee, right? It took Jimmy turning it up in certain games and situations against the Knicks. We're going to need to see superhuman Jimmy in six or seven for Miami to get this done, especially when you have... Such a lack of offensive creation. I think Bam has to be better. He has six turnovers in this game. He was aggressive in certain spots, but not early in this game. I need to see Bam be more physical. He has to be the number two with a lack of offensive creators here. And no Gabe Vincent in this game. You know, it's Gabe Vincent. I think a lot of, I don't want to say casual fans, but a lot of people who don't keep up with the playoffs, Gabe Vincent has been huge and instrumental in this run, as have the rest of the role players. But Gabe Vincent in particularly. In this series, 18 points per game in this series, Carson. He is 45%, excuse me, 46% on pull-up jumpers in these playoffs, 42% on pull-up threes. For a team that, like Miami, that is depleted offensively, no Tyler Hero, no Victor Oladipo, you need guys like that, and that's a huge blow for them in a game like this. And I don't know, man. I'm worried about Miami with Kyle Lowry getting so much burn, Carson. I thought he was a really weak point on this team especially early, you get some bad turnovers for him where uh, that little jump shot into a pass that has been so effective for Lowry throughout this series, uh, you know, he kicks it off to Bam, catches it back, hits a little mid-range jumper. Some bad turnovers early off of that where he's just giving it to Boston Celtics players. I thought they did a really good job of controlling him and making sure he couldn't penetrate the paint at all. Miami is at a lack of guys who can get downhill. Uh, he's stripped by Smart. I mean, Grant Williams is clamping him up. I think that's where my biggest concern is with Miami moving forward, Carson, is with injuries, and now with Gabe Vincent potentially out, you're really relying on Kyle Lowry. There's no one who can really get downhill on these guys. And then on that, I thought Boston attacked the biggest key that we hit on at the start of this series, Carson, with a lack of really good point-of-attack perimeter defenders where you can be really physical with. I thought throughout this game, Boston did a phenomenal job in the half court of attacking downhill. Now, Obviously, it's going to be easier when your three-point shot is falling the way it was for Boston early in this game. Everyone is hitting. Miami has to respect that a little more. They have to close out hard, which opens up more opportunities for Boston to attack downhill. But I thought they did a phenomenal job, and it's something that I think they need to do in Game 6 especially. If the shot is falling, if it's not, get all your guys to attack downhill. I thought they did a phenomenal job of attacking the undersized, under-athletic Miami defenders that they haven't been doing all series. Tatum's getting downhill. Brown, Marcus Smart, Derek White, even Grant Williams is getting downhill on guys like Struess, like Vincent, like Duncan Robinson. This felt like the game that we predicted long ago. You know, the game that this is how I expected the majority of this series to play out, if I'm being honest with you. We finally see Boston play up their potential. Um... And Miami doesn't. You know, Miami loses all the hustle categories. This is the kind of game that you can expect to see when Miami's not winning all of those hustle categories. That is imperative to them winning games. So I thought Boston just really attacked. They played harder. They hit on keys that they need to hit on. Tatum being great uh, at the start of this game. Them attacking mismatches and out hustling them. But this is a real uphill battle, I think, for Miami, man. I mean, again, I don't expect Boston to play like this every single night, but... Miami really is a, at a lack of offensive creators, and I thought that stuck out like a sore thumb in this game uh, really bad, especially you know without Gabe Vincent. It's just so funny that you say that you don't expect Boston to play like this every night because neither do I, and obviously we saw the product that they put forth in the first three games of this series, but what we have always known 
is they are capable of playing like this on any night, and their best punch is the best in the league, and so it is huge that they have been able to find that level of intensity and of purpose on both sides of the ball because they look significantly better than Miami right now, and I completely agree with you on the significance of Gabe Vincent going down. He is Miami's third best player and his level of shot making and playmaking being just another high IQ shooter out there is really important for a team that is struggling in those capacities, especially when Jimmy is limited in this game. And I thought that we saw the Celtics guard him pretty well. I think more Tatum on Jimmy is a challenge for him. Again, an athlete of that size with that kind of length. Jimmy was not getting the kind of easy switch hunting in this game that he has overall in this series. I also thought Robert Williams playing less drop and doing more outright switching in this game. We saw him present a lot of problems because against Kyle Lowry, for example, when instead of just conceding him a pull-up jumper out of drop, now you're putting a big athletic guy in front of him. It's not easy for him to get by that guy. And when Robert Williams has that monstrous block on a Jimmy Butler three, you see the effect that his length has. And then I also thought that they defended Bam better in this game, even though he ends up with his, I believe it was 24. You mentioned the six turnovers. I thought that they were giving him more variety, throwing more doubles at him, more aggressive help. We've seen them very content to sort of let Bam go to work in single coverage in this series. And I thought that he was rattled and affected by some of that. So you have some of those specific adjustments, but most importantly, it's exactly what you laid out. And it's the reason that they won game four. They've been engaged. They've shown fight. They've been consistently giving top tier effort, which is far from a guarantee with Boston. But the key in the first half to me, I mean, sure, they come out shooting the hell out of the ball and Tatum is displaying big time shot making and he's getting downhill. And so you're seeing the skill ceiling that they have. But even more importantly, you're seeing the effort ceiling with the level of constant ball pressure that they were applying, forcing Miami into an uncharacteristic amount of turnovers, six in that first quarter. And also with the level of aggression that they had on the offensive glass, they win the first half 13-0 in second chance points. So you can take every other difference, the turnovers and the gap in shot making. And that is pretty much the reason that instead of being a close game, this was a blowout in that first half. And Boston just remained comfortably in front throughout because once they built that league, Miami didn't have the firepower to come back in this one. I do think the defensive effort stands out for Boston because the shooting was always going to swing, right? They shoot 29% from deep over their first three games for one of the best shooting teams in the league who does so at such a high volume with so many capable shooters on the floor at all times. That number was never going to hold and these last two games have been explosions from them. But it's not just that they forced 16 turnovers, Logan. They had 13 steals in this game. So those are the most valuable kind of turnovers you can have, right? Because that means you are actively getting out into transition and they got 27 points off turnovers, which is an astronomical number, especially against a Miami Heat team that is usually so disciplined, so tight with the ball, so composed offensively. And Boston was blowing up everything, man. They were jumping passing lanes on just sort of casual passes to get an offensive actions. They were getting steals out of handoffs. It just felt like a different team, dude. Jalen Brown was awesome. I mean, he actually found his jump shot, which was huge because he had been abysmal in games one through four as a jump shooter. But athletically, you see him out in transition, defensively making plays like that. 
Obviously, you have a massive shooting night from Derek White, who remains one of the best role players in the league. Horford is playing significantly better, fighting on the glass, engaged defensively, actually capable of making shots these last two games. Robert Williams, we mentioned, not being exploited nearly as much for some of his spacing limitations or defensive rigidity. So it just feels like all of a sudden, after getting the worst version of Boston and the best version of Miami for three games, things have flipped and we're getting this incredible like world beater buzzsaw version of Boston. And Miami just has not been able to reach that same level. And I am worried about the Gabe Vincent injury. So What's your feel on where this is headed right now? Like Miami's going back home for game six, obviously. What can they do to turn the tides back in their favor? And how likely is it that they actually do? I don't know how likely it is. That's the best question. I I mean, it is weird to me, Carson, that it took, it seems like it always takes Boston's back being up against the wall for them to show up like this. They're 4-0 in elimination games in these playoffs. In their last eight elimination games, they're 7-1 it just goes hand in hand. I don't know what it is about them being cornered uh, like a you know scared animal, but when they are cornered, they turn it on, and you get this ferocious beast that comes out of Boston that I just wish we could see every night because we could crown them now. But it's going to be tough, one, because Boston certainly has all of the momentum, right? And there is a little bit of pressure, right, Carson? Like, we're not going to talk about it because it's never happened before, not in the sport of basketball. We've seen it in baseball. We've seen it in NHL. In an ironic twist of fate, you know, you'd figure the team that's up 3-0, the team that's up 3-1 can play loosey-goosey, that it's oh, it's almost in the bag now. But in an ironic twist of fate, you're seeing that the pressure cookers cook in Miami a little bit now because it's like, uh-oh, mm-hmm. if we drop this game, we have to travel back to Boston where, admittedly, Boston has been the worst playoff team on their home floor, which is a little bit of an advantage, but that's a raucous place to play. Miami's no cupcake either, right? Game six is going to be, I think, down to the wire. I think you are going to get the best two versions of these teams where they are firing on all cylinders. They are given full effort. But the pressure's on Miami now because Boston, again, ironically, while their backs are against the wall, it's 3-0. It's never happened before. You can afford to play loose because you have nothing to lose. You're already up against the wall. like So it's on. The pressure is fully on Miami's shoulders in Game 6. They have got all this weight and pressure for them to build off of, but I don't know if I can confidently pick Miami to win this game, Carson, and it's for all the reasons that I just laid out. It is going to take a hellacious effort defensively and on the glass and in all the hustle categories that we've seen Miami win throughout these playoffs. It is going to take Jimmy Butler giving this team somewhere between 35 to 40 points and being super efficient. It's going to take Miami against a great mm-hmm. Celtics defensive attack, protecting the ball every possession, and that's the biggest thing to me that I don't know if we can count on Miami. Dude, Kyle Lowry can't even just, like, a a serviceable point guard, right, can just hold on to the rock and make smart passes and, like, not force turnovers. Lowry couldn't even hold on to the ball tonight. If they pressured him, he was giving it up. He was making horrible passes. Like, even a guy like Gabe Vincent is just better at not just giving the ball up. Like, I don't even know if I trust Lowry as an initiator to just control the ball. So, it's going to take them being a lot more engaged, It's going to take them protecting the rock. It's going to take superhuman Jimmy. It's going to take them uh, shooting the lights out. And I just think they're really limited offensively uh, without Gabe Vincent. And so I'm, I'm very worried. If I had to pick this game, again, momentum 
and everything considered, I would probably say that Boston forces this thing to the seven where we're going to see them need to finish this thing off on their home floor or Miami finish this thing off in Boston. And again, like I said, I think another one of the biggest things, dude, is I thought we saw Boston really attack those mismatches that they have advantages in with all these Mm -hmm. great ball handlers who can get into the lane. That's something they need to continue to do, and I don't think Miami has an answer for that. I don't know, man. All the momentum's in on Boston, and I'm I'm somehow with them too, bro. It's very interesting because I said before this series when we were giving our predictions that – if I thought Boston was going to play their best game every single time out, I'd probably pick them to win in four. And then obviously they fell down three, nothing and had completely quit. It seemed on themselves in game three. And here they are. Now they effectively need a sweep and it doesn't feel impossible that they could do it. And after game four, even obviously they played better. They played with a lot more effort, which was big, but I wasn't convinced that they were going to come out and make the legitimate comeback push because Jalen still didn't look like the best version of himself. We didn't know at that point that Gabe Vincent was going to actually miss time, which I do think is pretty significant. So this is a game that Boston was supposed to win right back on their own home floor, backs against the wall, but it certainly was convincing. So I agree with every key that you laid out for Miami, right? You need great Jimmy. You need aggressive Bam, who is dominating defensively finishing aggressively around the rim out of pick and roll off the offensive glass and also giving you some of that skilled shot making. You need your role players collectively to ball out. Caleb Martin, I trust certainly. Max Struess has got to make big shots. I think Duncan Robinson, I will say, has been so impressive. Yeah, right? Like this game, I mean, he is running offense out of pick and roll at a high volume. We've seen more and more of those possessions sprinkled in there for him, but like, legitimately good playmaking, good feel out of pick and roll, and obviously one of the most lethal pure shooters in basketball. It's just so awesome to see him getting minutes again and actually doing some damage with it. So I think they need good Duncan Robinson to lean on, but it does ultimately feel like this is in Boston's hands, right? Because if they play up to their potential, what can Miami really do, right? You mix zone in there and you hope to rattle Tatum as a playmaker or to force them in a lot of those, hey, just one pass catch and shoot possessions where maybe they can get out of a rhythm and then they feed you in transition. Sure, but I don't know that there's a bunch of adjustments at this point that is going to throw this Boston team off. I think it's going to be a matter of them letting themselves down, not getting the best version of Tatum and Brown, having an off shooting night. Maybe they can't summon the same defensive level for another two games but right now it does feel like they kind of hold the advantage in this series but I don't know if I want to pick that because I do think Jimmy Butler is the best player in this series although this was the most tame the most limited that we've seen him I think in any game in these playoffs I thought that he struggled with Boston's length and was not overly aggressive in this game and Boston is the ultimate roller coaster And yeah, up to this point, they've been able to dig themselves out, but they've also given themselves margin, right? Like, sure, they play a terrible game one against Philly, but they're still up 2-1 in that series when they then lay a couple of bad performances. Atlanta, right? Two dominant games, and then the rest of the way, those teams are pretty much even, but they had already built the margin. And in this series, it's the exact opposite. They have no margin. They have absolutely 
no room to play around. So even though I do think Boston is the better team, and I think Boston is playing clearly and definitively better right now, man, the Gabe Vincent injury does throw a bit of a wrench into things because I'm like, that's a meaningful loss for a team that clearly needs more creation and offensive skill to hang here. But I don't know if I can bet on Boston again. I felt that they were out after three games. Obviously, they look like a different team right now. But it's just hard to keep leaning into getting bitten by the same snake, if you know what I mean. So I guess for now, I'll ride with Miami pulling it out. They don't look like the better basketball team, but Boston is just so wildly unpredictable night to night that betting on very good Boston for four straight games feels difficult to do. Okay. The other conversation we want to have. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have today because now that we're only down to this one series, we can talk about some more big picture stuff. And I think this is a fun one: is ranking the top five duos in the NBA because we are very much in a duos league right now, Logan. The days of the big three are no more look up and down the teams that were in the conference finals look at sort of the star pairings that are forming it's a whole lot of duos out there and we've got them still going Tatum and Brown Jimmy and Bam Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic so who do you have in that number five spot right now for the best duos in the league I think I'm gonna go and this is edging out Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown uh, I think I've got Giannis Antetokounmpo and Drew Holiday you know, Giannis always up there for one of the best in the league, two-way. Um, you know, Giannis, I, I have my frustrations with, and you saw the crux of the Giannis slander here. He's not a late-game guy, and he's just not a perimeter initiator, period. You know, it's not just good offense. He's a tank. He's a guy who doesn't really have a wealth of, you know, uh, moves in his bag, but at the end of the day, Giannis is still one of the best defensive players on planet Earth, and that's where the crux of uh, this argument goes. Drew and Giannis are one of the best defensive duos uh, in the league. And 
people rag on Drew in his offensive game too. Look, man, I don't know if people forgot during the uh, playoff run where they ended up winning the title against Phoenix. Drew came up really big in those playoffs, especially as a downhill guy, just putting his head down, getting to the rack, getting big buckets when this team needed. I know that our view can be a little tainted because of what we saw during this playoff run, but Drew's a really good offensive piece. He can set the table for guys. I mean, he had multiple games where he's really high in assist during this run. He is a legitimate playmaker. He's a good pull-up scorer and shooter at times. I know that wanes from time to time, but he's a well-rounded scorer. He's a great playmaker. He's one of the best defenders on planet Earth, and so is Giannis. And so I know because they're still not in the playoffs, because they got dogged by the Heat in round one, maybe some people wouldn't have this duo here. Uh, they actually bumped Tatum and Brown for me. I have Giannis and Drew Holiday at my five spot. I would have him even higher. And I do agree. We saw their greatest flaw exposed in that disappointing loss to Miami, which is that neither of them are great clutch half-court offensive creators. They are not in that top echelon of offensive skill when you're talking about guys who can just run, pick, and roll and get you a great look no matter what or create a great pull-up jumper for themselves out of isolation. And that costs them dearly, and that is real. They also won a title two years ago, and I think Giannis is still clearly a top three player alive. We can elevate Jokic and Steph above him because those guys are generational one-man elite offenses. But I don't think anybody else in basketball is in that same tier. I don't think that a Kevin Durant has shown the ability to single-handedly elevate an offense to that top tier. Joel Embiid certainly, I think, has far too many playoff issues. And so you go up and down the list, and it's tough for me to make an argument for anybody other than those two above Giannis. Because, yeah... Issues get exposed in the postseason, but in his last two postseasons, he looked like the best player on the planet. Had a historically great final series against Phoenix where he puts up 35 and 15 and has otherworldly defense and is wildly efficient offensively. And then last year, shorthanded without Chris Middleton against Boston, I thought reached the highest level we've ever seen from him as a playmaker. He's putting up over seven assists a night and is dissecting them, trying to build up such an aggressive wall, throwing such aggressive help at him while still getting his 34 a night with like okay efficiency. And ultimately, as physically taxing as that approach was on him, barreling into the paint over and over and then either finishing himself or kicking out when he draws help, it felt like he wore down the Boston defenders more than vice versa. So Giannis is a special offensive player with his sheer force, his transition dominance, and he is one of the best defenders alive. And I think that this makes a very strong case for the best defensive duo alive. Mm -hmm. And Drew just had one of his best career offensive seasons. Really good playmaking, was able to actually float the ship in stretches where Giannis was hurt, was an awesome shooter for a majority of the year. He's almost 38 plus percent from deep, and then comes to the playoffs and he's 28% from deep, right? So a shooting variance like that over a five-game sample, I don't want to completely reshape our view of this guy. So overall, I think you have a top three player. I think you have the best two-way duo in the league. Yes, they are flawed, but I would still have them at my number three duo my number five duo is actually Jimmy and Bam. I also do not have Tatum and Brown. And I think that Tatum and Brown make a legit case when they're firing on all cylinders. But I do think there's an inconsistency that exists with them because of their reliance on perimeter shot making. 
I think the playmaking limitations are very real. Jalen is just not an overly good decision maker to begin with. And Tatum ebbs and flows. Sometimes he dissects traps. Sometimes he collapses at the side of them. He's certainly not in that upper echelon of playmakers around the league. And we know that his confidence can leave him at times. His willingness to get downhill is not as consistent as it should be. So I just think the lack of like a dominant tier one guy to I'm not putting Tatum there. It feels like every duo above them for me has a significant edge either defensively or offensively. And I just think if you put any other duo with Boston's supporting cast on my list, mm-hmm. is there a question they'd win the NBA title? Like there's just a level of dependability of multifaceted impact that a lot of these other duos reach that I don't quite think Tatum and Brown do, but they're young, they're still improving, and hey, balling right now, obviously trying to make history. I do have Jimmy and Bam, and maybe this seems low to some people, but I think it's fair. Jimmy, obviously, come playoff time, is going to play like a top eight guy, and I think is one of the great playoff risers of all time because he has so many skills that translate so well. His physicality, his ability to always play at his own tempo, right? Okay, I've got a switch. Great, let me just hunt exactly the shot that I want out of pick and roll. Let me just weave my way to a beautiful look for mid-range. His mid-range game is extremely valuable and his scoring in the lane, the ability to create those looks within 12 to 15 feet. Again, not relying on that perimeter shot making like some other wings can tend to be good playmaking and consistent top end defensive impact. Some of the most genius defensive playmaking and just constant grit, competitive instincts, intangible kind of things. Makes him a top eight guy in the playoffs. There's no question about that to me. And Bam is playing very good basketball right now and is a good score off the roll, right? Really good athlete and a guy who can kill you with that touch finishing, with that mid-range shot making, but overall it's not an elite weapon. Like he's going to shoot in the mid to high 30s from mid-range. Teams are mostly going to deal with him in single coverage and live with that. But then again, we saw today Boston throwing some doubles at him, and that was flustering him a bit. So he is awesome defensively, highly switchable, but able of holding down that paint at a really high level too. I just feel like compared to my next duo, which I guess I'll just spoil for the sake of this point, is AD and LeBron, Bam is further behind the 80s and bronze of the world then jimmy is ahead of them and i think offensively they are lacking a bit compared to some of the other duos on my list so i went back and forth with this i think there's a real case for them to be higher but that's where i have them so who do you have in your four spot at four i've got jimmy and bam here and i also want to say too tatum and brown are my second duo off i actually have uh steph curry and wiggins in my number six spot you know i think that's the delineation I would make between Jimmy and Bam and the other guys being above them is there's still a lack of a great offensive engine in the sense that night to night, you know, I know what Jimmy can do in the playoffs. Like you said, Jimmy concretely elevates his game every single year in the playoffs. But I think to be in that upper echelon, you need a guy that is just rock solid, that is just dependable, that is going to get your offense to greater, greater heights. That's the thing that makes Jimmy and Bam special is defensively, yeah, I think they're maybe the second or the best defensive tandem. You know, you can argue Giannis and Drew. I mean, Jimmy and Bam are right up there. And I'm tired of the Bam slander too because it's like, I just don't get why people... 
the Heat aren't good for two years back-to-back, and then we all just forget that Bam Adebayo exists when he is one of the most mm-hmm. versatile, switchable guys when still being a great rim protector. Uh, Bam's great, and this is one of the best defensive duos on planet Earth. I am going to hold Bam's offensive limitations against him, though. Bam does a lot of things great, right? He's a guy that you can run DHOs through. That's why this Miami offense has been so great in these playoffs, creating easy pull-up looks off of him. He's a great playmaker out of the short roll with his back to the basket. And night to night, we've seen. Sometimes his shot making is on. Sometimes he can hit some deep elbow jumpers, some mid-range stuff. When Jimmy was out and injured earlier this year, Bam took over offensively and really showed the depth of his offensive game. But again, there are still limitations. Bam's not going to be an offensive hub. And without Jimmy, you know, he's just not a great offensive piece. I think to be in the upper echelon of this list of duos, you need to be a great offense first. But I don't want to undersell them. Jimmy and Bam, I think, have to be top five. And I don't know, maybe the maybe like you said, the conversation's kind of swung in a different direction where people are saying they're one and two. I'm not going to go that far yet, but I don't want to undersell them. They're a very special tandem. And with Jimmy, when Jimmy is really on... Yeah, they're probably higher night to night, but consistently, I'd have them four. Yeah, and maybe there are some people who will say, well, how could you have them below Giannis and Drew, Mm -hmm. like I do, when they just outplayed them in their first round series? Which, to me, is just, again, a matter of sample size. Like, Mm -hmm. it was two games. It was two games where Giannis was actually out there. Jimmy was unbelievable a god two of the best games that i've ever seen played in the playoffs but bottom line who do you think is a better basketball player i think an overwhelming majority of us will take Giannis in that conversation and drew also just played very poorly in those couple games not up to his level so i think it comes down to what level can bam consistently reach offensively and he doesn't answer that question decisively enough for me to move them higher. I do have AD and Braun at number four, and I think that they're a tricky one to place because there's a dynamic of inconsistency with Mm -hmm. them for various reasons, right? Like LeBron this season, under 31% from deep across the regular season in the playoffs, as he is more reliant on that perimeter shot making than ever before as a matter of conserving energy, basically. And so when that shot is off, He's limited, and that shot was off too much this year. And he's not dominating games for 48 minutes. He's not running high-volume pick-and-roll. He's not always engaged defensively. And then AD, six games these playoffs, he goes under 20 points. And he's not a consistent high-end scorer, right? The aggression isn't always there on the interior. The skilled shot-making at times will come and go. It's not an elite trait of his in the perimeter game just doesn't exist right now. Like everything is sort of within 15 feet and obviously is not an overly impactful playmaker. So those two guys in this playoff run, we saw some very high highs and we saw some lows that were lower than they should be. But overall, I don't want to overreact to this team getting swept by a historically great offense and a team that was just better than them top to bottom because I think there's a lot of teams that, could have met that fate, and they were competitive in all four games. I think AD is still a generational defender. I referred to him as the best defender in the world recently, and everybody had a collective conniption over that, as if that wasn't the consensus two weeks ago, as if he hadn't completely dominated two playoff series and was averaging four blocks a game and forcing defenses to 
forcing offenses to adjust their approaches as much as possible just to stay away from AD in the paint or to bring AD out of the paint. And then he gets torched by the best player alive. And that's supposed to change my outlook. It doesn't really. Nobody was going to guard Jokic ever. Nobody is. If you think Bam is, if that ends up being the finals matchup, I think you're in for a rude awakening because I think that Jokic would make food out of him one-on-one too. But he propelled him to the best defense in this playoff field through two rounds. He held people in this run 16% below their typical field goal percentage at the rim, the best of any volume rim protector over three blocks a game while having the best hands defensively of any big. 1.4 steals per game in this run. We saw how important that was with him playing that high drop against the Warriors, his ability to still affect passing lanes, his ability to affect people around the rim and their finishing, both with his shot blocking and with his ability to poke balls out. Like, he's just a special, special defensive player who does have a very high offensive ceiling when his touch shot making is on and when he's consistently committed and aggressive we saw there was a nine game stretch this year logan where he averaged 35 15 and over three blocks a game it was on like 72 percent true shooting as well but if you just take out the efficiency that was still a run that we've never seen anybody have akeem david robinson Shaq, nobody Wilt did it 40 times, I'm sure, but they didn't keep track of blocks officially. So I don't want to undersell Anthony Davis. He has real limitations, real things to be frustrated about, and we saw a lot of them in this past series, but I do still think he's a top 10 player. And then the best version of LeBron, we just talked about last episode, still feels like he's capable of being a top five player. When you look at game six against the Warriors, game four against the Nuggets, when he is willing to be physical, when he is willing to bang bodies down in the post. I mean, he created 1.2 points per possession out of post-ups this year as a scorer or a playmaker. It's just automatically great offense. He's too strong, too skilled, too smart, too capable as a passer. Really good transition weapon still. Remarkably at 38, still a very good defender when he wants to be. So in those do or die moments, he's just spectacular. And... If this duo were more consistent overall, they'd be higher for me, but I think that's a legitimate gripe. I think it's something that came back to bite them. They couldn't match the consistency of the Nuggets stars in that series, and it just so happened to be that in the first two series, they were better by enough, and their supporting cast were better by enough that they got away with it. In this one, they couldn't, so I can't have them higher than four, but I do feel good about them here. Who do you have at three? Yeah, I have AD and uh, LeBron here at three, and maybe there's a bit of a logical inconsistency. Uh, you know, I said you need to have a real, you know, high-level offensive engine to be really high on my list, so maybe Giannis does fit here more consistently logically, but I think there's a big, there's enough of a gap between AD, LeBron, and Drew Holiday, you know, for, for me to make this a real conversation. That being said, though, that's the biggest reason that AD and LeBron aren't higher on my list is consistency and then availability, right? There's a reason Mm -hmm. that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George aren't super high on my list, right? Because they're one of the best duos in basketball when available. But that's the biggest thing, man. You'll learn as you go through life, right? Availability is one of the most important things that you can have. I think there's a saying for that, Logan. The best availability is a, yeah, (laughs) the best ability is availability. (laughs) I had it on the second time. There you Um, go. But if that's as, you know, as an employee, as a kid going to school, just showing up is one of the biggest things. And so it's hard to rank a guy like Kawhi and PG who are constantly injured 
up on this list. And so it's hard for me to rank a guy like Anthony Davis, who is consistently injured or consistently off, and LeBron, who is consistently not his best self. I think there's a real argument that you could make that these two guys, on their best nights, they're the best duo in basketball. I think you can make that a real conversation. We just don't see it consistently enough. And Carson, you mentioned it. I mean, LeBron on post-touches, LeBron was the best post-scorer in all of these playoffs. Like, it wasn't even close. You can throw Joel Embiid out there, Jokic. I mean, these guys are great. LeBron, statistically, by points per possession, was the best post-up scorer in all of these playoffs. Anthony Davis, we had this debate, uh, you know, about a week ago. I think Anthony Davis just had the best defensive playoff run of anyone in my lifetime, at least that I've consciously watched. I can't think of anybody else who was more dominant defensively. Uh, Again, the reason that I can't have them higher is because of consistency and availability, but I don't know, man. There's something that, you know, I know LeBron can be a real offensive engine when he's on, and I know Anthony Davis is the best defensive player alive. I just wish... Damn, man, I just wish LeBron was a little bit younger and in the prime of it. I wish we could see this duo at their peak prowess because it would be something special to behold. But I just think there's a level of offensive ease with my two duos that are higher than LeBron Mm -hmm. and AD that I just value a lot more than I do when these guys can be so inconsistent. You know, AD is never going to be a real offensive engine. LeBron is on the tail end. Night to night can be that. The duos that I have higher consistent, easy offense, which I just value just a little bit more. I agree there. And I think it's funny that you say that you wish that we could see the better versions of AD and LeBron because I don't know if you remember slogan. We did, (laughs) and they actually won a title when they were both top three players on the planet. My number two spot, I will just jump to because I have Giannis and Drew at number three, and we already talked about that enough, is Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Because I think that this is probably the only duo out there with two consistent top 10 players. Like, again, AD and Braun are both capable of reaching that ceiling on any given night. But there's also a lot of nights where they don't look like top 10 players, either one of them. And I think that this duo was probably getting overly criticized because of how they went out in Game 6 against Denver. But the reality is that they were just outclassed by a much better team in that series. They got outplayed by the best players for Denver, too. I mean, Jokic was a class above either one of them in this series. But for the most part, they played out of their minds. And in this playoff run overall, they had an offensive rating of 119.2 when they shared the court. They combined for 63 points and 13 assists per game on 53-42-89 splits. And they did all that with an overwhelming offensive burden with poor spot-up shooting alongside them with no other real creators without particularly good finishing bigs or any sort of rim pressurers at all. Like, it was a special display of shot making. And Book is the guy who deserves the majority of the credit for it. And you can say that it was an outlier shooting run for him because it was 51% from deep. That's not normal even for Devin Booker, as awesome a scorer as he is. But he was nearly 59% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers in this playoff run, which is just ridiculous. And with mostly really good playmaking, over a seven assists a game. And talk about some of the moments he had in that Denver series where he sees Jokic coming in the high drop and he sees that a low man has had to rotate over to be able to tag the roller. And he is just directly whipping those skip passes over to the weak side corner. That's advanced stuff. And that's stuff that is the 
key to becoming a great offensive engine. Not just a great scorer, but a great offensive engine who is going to dominate individually and elevate those around him. And that's why I think Book has to be a top 10 player right now. And KD, I think, is still probably a top five player. Book outplayed him in this run, but I thought KD overall had an awesome playmaking season, had a very good defensive regular season, and is one of the three best scorers alive. Like, yes, too reliant on his pull-up jump shooting, and I think that that can apply to both of them. They're not going to have a massive defensive impact. They're not consistently elite playmakers, although they are both pretty darn good there. But it's the best shot-making duo, one of the best scoring duos that we have ever seen. And I think if they had a better supporting cast around them, they could have done some really special things in this run. So I think that they have to be number two for me. Yeah, they're number two for me as well. And again, Kevin Durant, people love to, in retrospect, we always look at the playoffs and the playoff result and everybody bases their next year's predictions based on this year's playoffs. Kevin Durant still, guys, had the most efficient 29-point-per-game season of all time. It was unrivaled shot-making. I feel like people are going to forget about that. We're going to go next year. Oh, man, KD was so good during the regular season. You know, who cares? They lost in the playoffs. It still matters. And, I mean, you hit on it, dude. If they were in Boston, right, you sub Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum for KD and D-Book, oh, and I'm taking over. the Celtics in the blink of an eye, man. You know, it's not even a thought. We're not, They're not scrapping for Game 6 and Game 7, man. It's wraps. They're in the finals now. But... Devin Booker, I think, if they had a better supporting cast, I think they go deeper here. I think to hold the result of that series against the best offensive player on the planet, against a much better collective unit overall, is just disingenuous to what these guys are as individual superstars. Devin Booker is one of the best isolation, transition, pick-and-roll scorers in all of basketball. He's one of the best pull-up shooters in basketball. Same applies to Kevin Durant, man. And like I said, that's the big distinction I would make between these groups and others. You cannot overvalue, or yeah, you cannot overvalue offensive creation. It is, mm-hmm. that's the most important thing in basketball. And the Suns' offense, while, yeah, they struggled at times, we knew that was going to happen. That's what happens when you're so predicated on pull up jump shooting. They're going to be great. And next season, we're going to see that. Like, I expect the Suns' offense to be one of the best in all of basketball if they can just stay healthy. And if they line them up with a better supporting cast, somehow can move on from CP, move on from DA, give these guys reliable spot-up shooting, reliable defenders, guys that just play well off of them and are really effective, I think this team can make a can make a legitimate run next season. I don't want people to hold their loss to the Nuggets solely against these two guys because I just don't think that's the right way to think about basketball. I said coming into the playoffs, I thought they were the best duo in basketball. I was wrong. I think there's one duo that is concretely better because we saw them outduel them head to head, but KD and Devin Booker are still two of the best on the planet. And yeah, I think people, like I said, man, I think people are a little too results-based. They might look at that and go, oh, they shouldn't be here. They got bounced in the second round. It's deeper than that. And they're better than that. They're going to be, they're two of the best offensive players on the planet. I'm with you there all the way, but the number one duo, Logan, I think has gone out there and grabbed that title, and that is Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, and I think we got to start with Jamal because he's really the only question mark that you could raise, I guess, in this ranking, like is he of the caliber uh, as a number two to justify this number one spot overall, but I think that he absolutely is because I think he's one of the best pure scorers in basketball. That's a title that he has earned himself. 28 points per game on 60% true shooting in this run. 
dominant efficiency out of the two primary categories that you probably look at for a guard first of all by far the most important pick and roll scoring he's 90th percentile and then isolation lower frequency but 81st percentile in these playoffs and as we said one of the most special shot makers alive and shot making scales because it doesn't require anything other than you going out there and getting to your normal spots and getting buckets 52 percent from mid-range 39 percent on pull-up threes so right away any pick and roll he is able to get to one of those two spots and kill you very efficiently handoffs right he is going to be nails from deep he's 42 percent on catch and shoot threes and there's a level of consistency that legitimizes this because he's gone for 25 plus in 10 of 15 games and he did this last playoff run in the bubble and now I think he's a little bit better overall and his playmaking has been mostly pretty good like yes there are times where he can get suckered into okay I'm the hot hand I'm just going to shoot the ball no matter what but Logan there's something crazy about that man where when he's in that zone he's actually probably going to torch you now I'm not saying that there isn't a downside to it and that sometimes he can take the offense which is so beautiful and flowing out of its rhythm a bit but I think it's far outweighed by his special special shot making so how do you ignore that How do you value the regular season production where, yeah, he's not going to be in the same echelon as a lot of these other guys over the playoffs where he consistently is dueling these guys, out shooting these guys and going toe to toe with the best of the best at the guard spot? I'm just not going to be the one to do that. I love Jamal Murray. I literally own a shirt that says this guy loves (laughs) Jamal Murray. I'm not a Denver Nuggets fan. I've owned this shirt for about four years. My friend got it Longer than that. Maybe longer than that. He's a great basketball player, and he's a beautiful basketball player. And Nikola Jokic is the best player alive, and I think that's the separator, right? KD, Book, these guys are top 10 players, but they're both liable to have off nights because of their reliance on pull-up jump shooting, and they're not going to dissect and dominate you with their playmaking every single game, whereas Jokic is going to dominate every single game. He's going to dominate on the glass. If his perimeter shot making isn't there well then fine he'll get to all of his floaters and his touch shots and you know he'll just get a couple putbacks for free every single game because he's the best putback scorer alive and he'll create some great transition looks for his teammates and he will inevitably draw attention out of the post and just get 10 assists create a bunch of quality looks for shooters and cutters it just doesn't stop he's the highest floor in the NBA because of that, because of his multifaceted offensive genius. He is one of the best pure shot makers in the league too. I don't want to take that away. And I think arguably the best scorer with his level of physicality and shot making and versatility, pick and roll, inverted pick and roll, running off of pin downs, right? As a cutter and obviously as the best post scorer alive, he can just do it all. And he's in a different class offensively. And you mentioned Steph and Wiggins as an honorable mention. To me, Wiggins is too far down that list. I think I'd actually still go Draymond as their second best guy if he's still around. But Jamal's in a completely different class. And so that's why I can't quite put anybody in the top five duos if they don't feel like a duo. Mm -hmm. This is a duo, man. And this is a duo for the ages. And they are the best duo doing it right now. 100%. It reminds me of that post-game interview I it was very early in these playoffs, and they asked Jamal afterwards, like, you know, how can you consistently keep doing this? Uh, when are the people going to wake up and realize? Jamal's like, what else do I have to do to prove myself? Jamal has been doing this for years on end. And so I think a lot of people are probably going to bat an eye and say, oh, Jamal isn't in these upper echelon of players. He's not even with 
he's he doesn't belong in this conversation. The one edge that I'll add that I think Jokic and Murray have above these other duos, Carson, is their collective synergy, right? There are some redundancies mm-hmm. with all of these other duos, right? A Tatum and a Brown. They're both really effective with the ball in their hands, but they're not great off-ball guys who can play off of each other. Giannis and Drew Holiday. Neither of them are great individual offensive engines. Again, and you don't really see, I know Giannis is a great role, man. The Bucks need to run more of it. You don't see a whole lot of that with Drew and Giannis. AD and LeBron, right? Two bigs. It's kind of hard to run offense with both of them. KD and uh, D-Book. Again, redundancies where they're not as effective off-ball. Jimmy and Bam, same, same thing. They're just not at that level offensively. Jokic and Murray are great individual pieces. Murray's one of the best difficult shot makers in basketball. Jokic is flat out the best player in basketball. But you can run so much action between the both of them. If that's Jamal running pick and roll, if that's Jokic running pick and roll and Jamal setting the screen, if that's Jamal moving off ball and relocating, if that's running DHOs, like, to me, that's one of the deciding factors between this duo is that it's, they can play so well off of each other in the way I don't think any other duo in the league can. Like, I think they are, and I know this is, like, stereotypical, this is kind of head-ass, they're like two perfect-fitting puzzle pieces. I can't think of a duo that just fits better together. It's the best fit, in my opinion. Call me crazy. And I think that there is a talent discrepancy between these two and Jokic and Murray, but, like, reminiscent of, like, how Curry and KD fit together in Golden State when they were running together. Like, I think that there's just a a great fit here that's no disrespect to Jamal, too, because I think Jamal's a top 15 guy in the league, and I think we need to start wow. recognizing that when it comes playoff time. I mean, I'd say top 20 to 15, somewhere in there, man. Jamal's yep. legit, and yeah, they're my number one duo, too. Again, the offensive ceiling that these two guys can reach with such ease, nobody else even competes, man. It's it, There's levels to this, and... Uh, Again, I think people are going to think we're being reactionary, Carson. I don't think people are going to agree with us. I think they're probably not going to agree with us in Jokic and Murray won, but uh, I think they are, and I think they've concretely proven at this run. Anytime they've been together in the playoffs, they've produced. And this is a great team we've talked about. They have great offensive weapons, special catch and shooting with MPJ and KCP and an awesome cutter and rim finisher and Aaron Gordon and a great versatile do-it-all guy. In Bruce Brown, Denver is looking like the best team in the league right now. It's not just about these two. I mean, it is about Jokic more than anybody else being the best player alive. But Murray is one of several very good offensive pieces. But he is a class above them because of how lethal he is creating for himself. These two Logan on the floor together in these playoffs, an offensive rating of 123.4. And Jokic individually is 30-13-10 and 10 on 62% true shooting. It's historic greatness. And... We got to acknowledge that. I think they're clearly the best offensive duo. And I just think if you're looking at, okay, who can make that two-way case like Giannis and Drew, I think too flawed offensively in comparison to these two. I don't feel like it's an overreaction. I feel like Jamal has earned this level of respect on the playoff stage. And obviously, as has Jokic. So other honorable mentions, PG and Kawhi, you said it, I think would be here if they had been available once at the same time in the last three playoffs. (laughs) They're not really eligible for this list right now, in my opinion. Same goes for like Brandon Ingram and Zion. If we actually saw them play half a basketball season, we could start to talk about them. Harden and Embiid, I think their playoff limitations are too real, especially for Harden. Embiid's playoff limitations are real, 
but he goes from being whatever a top five regular season player to like closer to 10th in the playoffs whereas Harden is liable to just fall off a cliff and at any moment disappear offensively because he can't get downhill because he can't finish against length so shout out to all those but I think that we had the same five here for a reason and I think that we had the same number one for a reason it's because they've earned it so we will be back after Celtics heat game six what a fascinating series that has become Hope you guys enjoyed this one. We certainly did. And as always, we appreciate you. If you want more of our content, check us out on TikTok at NerdSesh. That's where we're most, most consistent with our trivia videos. Instagram, same handle. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. You can catch the show on YouTube, the volume page, or on any audio platform. And you can join our Discord if you want at the link tree in any of our social media bios. Just come out, talk with us about basketball, NFL, It's a fun place to sort of get to chat with us directly, and we love growing that community too. So with that, as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was NerdSesh. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.